Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. Go to our site, check out the things that are there. Uh, lots of freebies, lots of papers, lots of videos, lots of testimonies. Uh, we're making uh, spiritual online experiences, gospel experiences for real Christians. Check it out. We are in the process of going through a podcast on the Sermon on the Mount. We started on Matthew 3, and we're working our way to the actual Sermon on the Mount because we see that it's introductory material. It's character development of Jesus. Helps us see what the kingdom is really all about. So, I mean, how can you understand what Jesus is being is saying unless you understand Jesus and his sense of mission and the, the things that he brings to the table? So that's what we're doing. Right now, we're in the section Matthew 4, 17 to 22 on the calling of the disciples. Uh, so let me read Matthew 4, verse 18 to 20. Oh, by the way, I do want to uh, point out and invite you to, to, to check out my latest re-engineered Instagram gospel app, one word, got G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P, check it out. It really is for people to get daily shots of the gospel, uh, the a drip, drip, drip of this hope of the gospel. So for hurting people, think of people who are struggling with anxiety during this pandemic or loneliness not feeling enoughness or connectedness, people who haven't been able to forgive some some uh, cr- chronic wounding, uh, those kind of people, people who are struggling with faith. I mean, do you feel like you've walked away from the faith or, or you've lost your faith or God's disappointed in you? Yeah, check out the, the Instagram and get the word out, please. We're trying to help people. That is our passion, how to apply the gospel to the real lives of real people in the real world. All right, back to Matthew 4, 18 to 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, Matthew says, they left their nets and followed him. So I love this. And this is an important piece of of information pre-Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opened up his storefront ministry in the internationally flavored community of Capernaum. No staff, but got to go get some. And here's the the history of how the staff started to grow. This is also how it expands today. This is what discipleship looks like and at its very foundation. We can layer things on top of it, but the very foundation is this, Jesus saying, come and follow me. Again, I'm going to say a little critically, but not judgmentally, I think we have been lazy about discipleship and calling, and I'm going to explain, okay? The come follow me in the context implies that Jesus is calling these men to become his official disciples, right? Not just, hey, I'm going to the 7-Eleven, come on, let's walk. It's not that. It's literally to follow behind him. And this is the technical phrase of a discipleship. And disciples then in the first century uh, Middle East were to submit to the leadership and the teaching of their discipler, the discipler's hardship. They were to follow him, live with him. And they moved out of what they were doing and moved in with the teacher 24-7 gig, right? So, and normally in Israel, it's the student who must pursue the teacher. I mean, concertedly pursue the teacher or their family would pursue the teacher to, to convince them of the student's capacity, their calling, their financial self-sufficiency, their character, you know, their overall worthiness. I mean, there was a checking out period, before the teacher would accept them, because it's the teacher's credibility on the line as well. But 
the way Jesus gathered his disciples was way different. Remember those seven things that reflected the kingdom? It really does reflect the humility of the kingdom. So before we dig into Matthew's fascinating take, I want to look at John and Luke's of the same uh, issues, right? Here's John 1, verse 35 to 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teachers, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Man, that is the the shortest interview for any disciple ever. Uh, Jesus, what are you seeking? There it is. That's that's it. There was no essay to send in. There was no investigation. There was nothing, none of that. Jesus, what are you seeking? Come, and you will see. Right, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We, we don't give Andrew cred. He, he, according to John, he was the first disciple, or at least the first of two. I'll say something about that in just a second. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him, that's Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So not only was Andrew one of the first two disciples, the first staffer, John the gospel writer tells us that Andrew was already a disciple of John the Baptist. He already had some spiritual interest and he witnessed the baptism of Jesus according to John and he and another, and here here we go, we, we are really sure without being 100% sure that, that the other one was John, the gospel writer himself. That's how John did things. We can't be sure, but we're pretty sure. He and another pursued Jesus, made a request of him, where are you staying, which is kind of a, you know, hidden masked way of saying, so you're open for disciples? They were received by Jesus. And why? I mean, it seems that they took their former teacher, John the Baptist's word for Jesus's cred, seriously. And that wasn't an extensive statement either. Behold the Lamb of God, right? That's it. Imagine you going to work for a company because somebody told you, hey, look, that's a good place to work. Wouldn't you do more investigation? Wouldn't you pursue it yourself? Wouldn't you, would you just go, right? And then Andrew, good guy, man, he goes to his brother Peter and he makes another bold statement. We have found the Messiah. That's amazing that he gets it that quickly. I'm impressed by Andrew. I don't think he gets the cred. And if he had written a book, I suppose, uh, he just doesn't get the respect he deserves, I think. And John credits him with bringing Peter to Jesus, the first evangelist. Matthew's going to further unpack that meeting for us. So that's John's version of how the first three staffers were added, Andrew, Peter, and John. But notice, again, very little background checks, no due diligence, almost no dialogue, no questioning, no rap sheet investigations, no questioning about anything financial or ranking or worthiness. It's a humorously brief interview. I mean, what are you thinking? It's a, it's a poignant question, right? I mean, it's, it's a multi-layered question. I love it. Oh, you know, where are you staying? Interesting response. Come and you will see. That's it. It's cryptic. And Jesus has the first two of his staffers, his disciples, that will change the world. And I'm going out on a limb to say, this is crazy and would not have normally happened in those days. Uh, right? The whole movement was on the line, and Jesus picked these three people with almost little investigation. But Jesus is God, after all. 
All right, here's Luke's perspective of the exact same events with, with a little bit of change here or there. Luke 5, 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. Your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. A miracle, right? Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. If, you, if you're watching The Chosen, it's a great scene uh, when this happens. I think it's just really well presented. Verse, verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Right there on the beach, he falls down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, again, this is hardly the kind of interview statement that you want to make. You know, I've had multiple interviews where they say, give me some strengths and give me some weaknesses. And you plan ahead of time because you got to be careful what weaknesses you you talk about. Uh, But Peter, I'm a sinful man, meaning I'm not worthy. I'm not pure. I'm not worthy to be a disciple. Uh, I'm just not. Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men, right? Uh, Overlap with the the other sections we've looked at. Verse 11, and when they had brought the boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Very terse, very cryptic. They left it all. Uh, Don't know if that took, if that was immediate or if that was 30 minutes or if that was two hours, but... From the cultural perspective, from Luke's perspective, it was immediate. That's the idea, from God's perspective. So it's a little different angle from John's account that we looked at, but not inconsistent. I'm going to go out on another limb and guess that this is from Peter's perspective. We do think that Luke primarily was interviewing Peter as he wrote his account, primarily. So um, imagine Luke asking Peter later in life, 20 years later, 30 years later, asking how he became to follow, how he came to follow Jesus. And this is the story. This is what Peter highlighted. And again, if you're a kind of person today that likes their biographies, literal, uh, completely, totally accurate, exact wording, exact order, consistency galore, you know, uh, you could squeeze these things together. You could edit the material. You could start by shoving Luke's account somewhere in between John 141 and 142 and then do some editing. But the moment you do some edit, editing, you lose some literal nature of it. Uh, the point is each of these authors is telling the story, spirit-inspired, using the same facts, uh, the same accounts, the same eyewitness accounts in a way that moves their main points forward. They're telling their angle on the kingdom of God and, and what Jesus did, and what Jesus was all about, and the, the priorities of Jesus. And, and Or they're answering the questions that's asked of them. I did a series on Acts, and I, I presented that as, as uh, Luke being answering questions that are being asked in that day and time. And so the, the, the material is shaped that way, right? But this is how legit ancient historical narratives are done. And these happen to be spirit-inspired, so we can bank on them. Look, in Luke's account, it would seem that 
Peter's key exposure, perhaps, to Jesus was a wild miracle that, that frightened Peter, that brought him to a kind of awareness of, of his sinfulness. And he hits the ground, he confesses that he is unrighteous, he's shaking, the word is phobo in the Greek. And Jesus called them and told them, don't be afraid, because from now on, you will be catching men. Really not the response, typical response to somebody who says, I'm a sinner, leave, but I, I, I'm not... I don't want to soil you. And, and Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. I can work with this. You're going to be catching men. And if you're just reading the story, or let's say you're trying to do a screen light, right, like like the chosen, I got to tell you, this comes right out of the blue. A, a film editor would 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 add some some copy. Why would a rabbi like Jesus, trying to start a new movement, right? I mean, humanly speaking, attach themselves to a person who's just confessed they're not good enough. They're not a God-following Jew. Your, it's your reputation, right? The message is this, this. All of a sudden, you're, you're making somebody who is impure a leader. Remember, Jesus's mission, Jesus's heart was for the failures. Peter's a poster child, a broken, those who were out of sorts with God, sinners. The kingdom gathered sinners. It made it wildly messy, right? But that's what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is made up of redeemed sinners, I mean, that's, that's part of the problem with churches, where the, where the gathered sinners, redeemed, but where the gathered sinners loved by God. But honestly, to some degree or another, we're self-centered. That's what sin is, right? And we don't love others a little bit or a lot. So churches are supposed to be messy, and, and particularly where the, being, where the gospel is being prioritized. Peter is a poster child for such a recruiting strategy. And you remember the classic World War II film, The Dirty Dozen? I think that's I think it's an amazing image of what the kingdom does. It's gathering the dirty dozen for a mission that nobody else would take, and and uh, you know the likelihood of success, humanly speaking, is low. And yet, look what God does with sinners, with redeemed sinners. All right, now let's look at Matthew's stark report of all of those events put into one big package. Matthew four eighteen. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw the two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, right? So Matthew emphasizes, culturally, this happened in a, in a you know, lightning flash. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his John, his brother, and in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately, he emphasizes again, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Same events we saw in Luke and John, but a different point of view, narrative point of view, not a theological point of view, but a narrative point of view. I want to unpack Matthews in three piles, perspective, theological, and personal. Okay, here's perspective. Yeah, I'm suggesting, and this is a rant, so I can do that. Push back, ask questions, bill at gospel-app.com. If you have a different opinion, let me know. This is, I think he's talking about it from the perspective of the kingdom, from the perspective of God. And remember, God's kingdom, kingdom of heaven, is a circumlocution to represent God himself. They didn't want to use God's name, and so they use different circumlocutions like God's name, God's kingdom, kingdom of heaven, but it's God. God's here, Jesus, and he's gathering a new people, sinners. And so unlike the typical rabbinical approach of trying to gather righteous people, trying to gather the pure people, so-called, God's pursuing who he wants to gather. And he has a heart for those people who are outies, 
who have blundered, who have screwed up, who are failures. That's why he's in Capernaum and not in, in Jerusalem. And these are clearly people who aren't spiritually ready or spiritually acute at this point. Uh, and, you know, humanly speaking, right? He's pursuing them, though little reason to justify the pursuit. Commentator Bruner gets it. Quote, what makes these people disciples? Is it, as we sometimes hear, something Jesus saw in Peter and Andrew, some potential, some sincerity that singled them out? Nothing of the sort is recorded. Matthew forcefully directs our attention away from anything in the disciples and towards the effective word. Matthew repeatedly underlines the power of Jesus's word. The power that makes disciples is not the human potential of Peter and Andrew. It's the spiritual potency of the word. When the speaker saith something that he will have, it must be so. The, the perspective is that God is not waiting for worthy people to come to him, like the disciples did for other disciple makers, other rabbis. He's making disciples, and he's starting with people who are not worthy. They're not prepared. In this particular case, they're not even searching for him. Maybe Andrew, a case could be made, he's searching for spirituality, and that would be an interesting discussion. And remember number four in our list of seven character aspects of Jesus and the kingdom. When Jesus speaks, power goes forth and he makes disciples. His word changes things. It's, it's what, what, God, what Jesus's word does. It changes people's lives and identities and motivations. It's so stark. And so Jesus proclaims creatively, follow, and immediately they did because they wanted to now. No ifs, ands, or buts. They didn't want to a second ago or a minute ago or an hour ago, but they do now. A miracle takes place because that would never happen then or today. Again, if you try to make this into a screenplay, is there some awkwardness there? Uh, how do I explain the new movement? How do I explain the new direction? Uh, what humanly happened inside of them? And the answer biblically in Matthew is Jesus spoke. So when Jesus says, come and follow, they do. They immediately, Matthew says twice, left their lives in context and just followed. Again, no questions recorded uh, that they asked of Jesus. The calling changed something inside of them. It had to, because we do what we want to do. And that left them not needing details. I mean, that's just so strange in, in our modern economy. I want details. I want to know. I want to know if I do this, then what do I get? Um, right? If I do this, is it going to be safe? If I do this, what do I do with everything else I've been doing? So they knew, and I'm, the knowing is, again, it's, it's the wrong word. I'm right trying to reach for it, but they believed, if you will, that they must follow, that they wanted to follow. And for that to happen, they had to have been given a new desire to follow. And that's what God does. He gives us a new heart that wants new things. Our old heart wanted old things, things more self-centered, that's sin. And Jesus accomplished this new heart by proclamation, follow. So simple, so so brief. His prophetic word creates followers. By the way, imperfect followers, this side of heaven, no one's perfect this side, right? But but he, he creates followers. So the church is made up of the imperfect followers of Jesus. And they leave everything behind to one degree or another, because we'll see that they'll actually go back to fishing later on. But they leave, it's, it's dramatic. I mean, creds to them and followed. This is what this kingdom does. Do we have a word that captures this transformation? Miraculous. That's it. I think that's the best word we've got. Jesus's calling of his disciples is not like my calling of disciples or, or church members when I was a, a lead pastor. Jesus's calling is powerful. It actually changes individuals' motivation. I don't have that power. Uh, as an evangelist, I don't have that, that power. It, it's, 
it's a mystery to me why when I talk to people about the gospel, some get it. It's amazing to watch. And it's just fun, by the way. And, and it's, you're in this flow. And sometimes they don't. And you can say whatever you want to say. You can use the exact same arguments and nothing, nothing. It's, it's amazing how, uh, how much we require God to do something first. Jesus made them want to come. Let me be harsh, but this is important. He stepped all over their so-called free will and made them want to come and, and come now. That's a huge miracle. And in today's uh, sensibilities, whew, that's so uncomfortable. Shouldn't he sit down, dialogue with them, listen to their concerns, let them be heard, discuss all of the arrangements so everybody's calm, everybody gets it? all the details. You know what? Let's get a lawyer, discuss shared liabilities, do a contract, and then get them to sign on the bottom line. But there needs to be an out clause. Need to get someone from human resources to instruct them on money sharing, stock market, days off, 401ks, healthcare, working conditions, that kind of thing, right? You know, can I work at home? Do I need to go to the office? Can I use Zoom? You know, and we better get a theologian in to see what Jesus is saying, and, and does it fit with the Old Testament scrolls? Which side of uh, of Judaism is he on? Um, how did, how would Qumran react to him? I just want to know, because I'm going to be talking to these people, about a police check on Jesus' background. We don't know this guy, right? Does he have a rap sheet? I, I'm, I'm being a little humorous here, but... You get the, this is, this is what we would do. This is how we investigate churches a little bit. I mean, maybe not the rap sheet part. Maybe we should. I don't think that we can just paper over this troubling notion of calling that Matthew is presenting. But it's important as we hit into the Sermon on the Mount that this is what Jesus is doing. He's not just teaching, he's creating or recreating. Uh, and I, I certainly don't think that what we should take for this passage is just how reasonable and agreeable Peter was, right? We don't think that at all. The emphasis, I would say, is not on the four disciples' faith and wisdom and humility and ability to be reasoned with, but on the power of the calling of Jesus. Jesus changed them by a single proclaimed sentence. Follow me. And they acted according to their newly created motivation. They followed. That's what the newly created motivation does. And I can't overemphasize how important this is to understand and to have as a foundation as we head into the Sermon on the Mount. He, on the Sermon on the Mount, he's proclaiming, powerfully proclaiming new creation on broken, uh, busted, lost humanity. It's not just good reasoning that we can manipulate and copy. It's not just teaching that we need to pass on. Jesus' words are powerful to change the lives of unworthy miserable people. The tokoi in the Greek, I'm going to say a lot about that when we get to it, but that the tokoi are those on the hillside. They weren't just poor or just sick. The word has a nuance that not only are they poor, they, they can't fix it. Not only are they sick and, and oppressed, they can't improve their lot. The assumption is they've tried and given up. There's just no way, humanly speaking, they're stuck. They're in quicksand. Trying harder to be better? Think about being in quicksand, trying harder. You just go down deeper. Trying to be more righteous? You'll never be enough. More pure? You've already messed up. More Jewish? To really, you know, work hard to really, really, really follow the writings, the Torah? It's just not going to cut it. And they see that. They're tokoi. That's the idea. They've, they've screwed up. They've got no hope. They've tried and they've done that. They might be hardened, but you know what? They're tokoi. They need a miracle of some note 
to move them from their stuckness, right? You have to be able to relate to this. All of us have been there to move them from their darkness. They need a little light so that they could actually see Jesus, hear Jesus, much less move towards him. Remember, when Jesus speaks, there is that power of creation in his word. When he teaches people who he speaks to, they are changed. And when he calls, people not only follow, but they want to follow. He is creating order in the chaos and formlessness of their, our brains. Not answering all of our questions by any means. And we're still wondering what what he means by a lot of the things he's teaching. It doesn't matter. We followed. Have you experienced that uh, confident following lately, that motivation to follow without all the questions being answered? You did once, right? You, You walked down the aisle or you were baptized or whatever. You said the prayer. Yeah. Don't you want that more? I do. You can feel it again. And that's good news, right? And how? the powerful words of Jesus. And and by the way, that's one of the things we've incorporated into the dance. Here's a shameless plug, the-dance.org. This is what we're trying to accomplish with the dance is to recover that, to be rem- reminded of that, to to, uh, to to re-grasp that, this relationship with Jesus, this powerful calling of Jesus. So where you feel like for a moment, you're not stuck. You're not a failure. You're not a loser, that you're actually loved by God. That's the point of the dance. It's online. Uh, a two-hour spiritual gospel experience. I recommend it to you. Satisfaction guaranteed. Is, you really can't lose. Go to the-dance.org and, uh, and check it out. I'm begging you. All right. Jesus is not merely trying to convince anyone of benefits of following him, right? Uh, matter of fact, time and time again, he talks about the dangers. Uh, he'll do it in the, in the sermon, in the blessed bees. Uh, he's not trying to sell something. If he is, it's a horrible sell. He's not trying to put them on massive guilt or shame trips. That's what they would have been used to with the the temple in Jerusalem or the temple in whatever religion they were. This is not just Jesus being reasonable, sharing new information. I think it's fair to say that modern apologetics, Christian apologetics, is largely focused on trying to convince people. The the prefrontal cortex, convincing people of Jesus's uh, veracity, historicity, right? And, and, and convince people, then choose to follow. But, but that's true, and yet we're missing the, the miracle. And God can do the miracle anyway, but we evangelists, are we imagining the miracle anymore? Are we counting on it? All right, so convincing is not a bad thing, but in the end, you know, choosing to drop everything and follow Jesus without having answers to so many of our reasonable questions or not liking the, the answers that, that Jesus gives, that's not reasonable, humanly speaking. That's not how we live our lives. It's not reasonable that God would pursue the likes of us. I mean, to be honest, it's not reasonable that God would bring people like me into his kingdom. It's not reasonable that we would follow. It's just, it's just not. You know, uh, danger, 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 Will Robinson. It's, it, there's um, there's this, that nasty critical voice in my brain that says, don't go there. Man, you get closer to God, he'll see. He'll see those things. And when he sees, that's what the critical voice says. So there's part of me that says, flee, don't follow. So Jesus did something when I was 21 to make me want to follow in spite of that nasty critical inner voice. All right, let me, let me dig into that. Let's assume that at a certain place in their brain, the people in the Sermon on the Mount didn't want to see God's face. Uh, not that day, right? Because, because they weren't at their best, and maybe they had walked away from God. Maybe they, they weren't in Jerusalem. If they were Jews, they weren't in other, other uh, places where their temples were. They were doing a, a, a end around, trying to get healed without their God. I mean, this has got to be some shame. They don't want to see God, right? 
And by the way, if they were tokoi, why would they, they, they partly blame God for their, their state anyway? So why would they want to see God? And some of them, if some of them, like Andrew, had been with the failed baptism of John, again, they, they failed. God had rejected them. Inherently, right, he accepted Jesus's baptism, but not theirs. So look, they're not prepared. They're, they're not, they haven't done the mikvah before they went into the temple. They haven't brought an offering. And they have a terrible track record of following Judaism or whatever their religion would be. God is God. If, you know, if, if all of a sudden someone said, God's coming and let's all gather at the hill and God's going to, you know, who's going to come? It's the Pharisees, and not, not this bunch, because it's a high risk of failure. Um, God's a wild card. Remember the exile? So shame and guilt have been ripping through the hearts of even the very best of them. I'm in this situation because I did something wrong or didn't do something right. So let me, let me change metaphors. Think of fish floating around and this large fishing net appears and they're going, hey, that looks beautiful. Looks like salvation to me. That'll give me hope, right? I mean, and remember, by the way, uh, they're also carrying, this is in Galilee. So institutional cultural shame of the failed revolution only a generation before. And, and here, another, a new revolution? Yeah, too soon. But what if the person who's casting the net, the fisher person, was able to reach into the fish's tiny, tiny brain and make them see, make them know, make them believe, make them be aware that the net is a gateway to greater fishness, and they should come as they are. And... Um, they once they're in the the net, they'll be taken to where they're more fish connectedness and fish enoughness, <laughs> and they get a little or a lot that they were really miserable, failed, and shamed fish, not experiencing what they were created for, and they couldn't have known that or have been convinced of that through a brilliant PowerPoint presentation. I found that never works with fish. It was beyond their capacity to imagine. By the way, mine too. And so Jesus makes them see. When they looked into his eyes on that hill, they felt the possibility of something they needed to experience, ridiculously powerful. And so he says, follow me. And they do. <clears throat> Crazy stuff. This is what Jesus' call did for the disciples then and for me the day that I heard Jesus' word. A holy transformation happened. The Old Testament prophets refer to it as a new heart. The heart, the heart meaning not just the seat of emotions, but everything, the mind, will, and emotion, the whole person. But it also includes shame, critical inner voice, dysfunctions, inner working models, uh, addictions, habits. And then I heard the good news. In the midst of all of that mess, I heard the good news. I technically had heard the words before, I guarantee it. But something else happened when I was 21, and there was a hearing with an interchange. Something else happened. I heard, I believed, it made sense. I felt loved. I felt forgiven. I didn't feel any more pure. I still was carrying a lot of shame for stuff I had done. But in a, in a nanosecond, I saw things his way, which was very different from my way, and I wanted to follow. He rescued me. In an earlier podcast, I likened this calling to Genesis 1, where the Spirit is hovering over the formlessness and void of chaos, and he speaks. He's, the word is bara. And only God does bara. And when God baras, there's order and life created. And that's what Jesus did in the disciples, in the calling. He's going to do it again on the Sermon on the Mount, but we see it starkly with the disciples. And these weren't pure, righteous Jews, right? They were Peter, James, and Andrew, and John. They weren't better people after the calling. They weren't more educated after the calling, or more righteous, or less sinful. No, <laughs> right? 
The strongest desire they now had was to stop what they were doing, good things, fishing, providing for your families, right? And follow Jesus without any safety net um, or assurances. Well, I'm asked, can they choose to not follow? Yeah, that's a reasonable question, but, but track me here. When Jesus speaks, follow me, he also gives them a core motivation to follow. They want to follow now. They will choose to follow. And technically, yeah, I guess they could refuse, but that would be like me refusing when someone offers me a bowl of Cherry Garcia or, or gumbo. I'm just highly motivated to accept either one. I don't need to ask questions. I don't need details. I want it. And the consequences. All right. Uh, now I want to look at it theologically. Why was this powerful calling necessary? Uh, why do we need alien miracle from God? That's sort of irritating, right? Uh, I, sh- I should be able to do this on my own, right? Well, and the truth is, I should, and, and but I won't. So why do I need this this offensive, aggressive miracle from God that steps all over my so-called free will? Well, because we're so entrenched and blinded in our darkness, we can't see the light. Remember the Isaiah quote: "We won't." The light would scare us to death because we're people of darkness. And we certainly wouldn't see it as a good thing. It's threatening to our darkness, even though our darkness is killing us. It's more comfortable, right? The devil you know versus the devil you don't know. And largely subconscious, I get that. Something has to change, not from within me, because I would have done it if I could have before, but from outside of us, from the realm of light. Darkness can't be convinced that light is good for it on its own. It just can't. I was speaking to an atheist blogger. Uh, late last year, and I got to this point, and it blew him away. He said something to the effect, you know, trying to trap me. Are you saying that I won't believe until God makes me believe? That it's not my fault, it's his? You know, I definitely wouldn't put it that way, but but there was a lot in that statement that I agree with. It's And by the way, I'm troubled with it too. I told him that. I'm so used to the necessity of my will being supposedly free that it's the uh, that my will is the highest right of my humanity, and certainly in our culture, and I need to protect my choice. I'm the agent who must suffer consequences, right? Well, all that's true, and the wages of that series is death. So if I'm headed down that track, I'm headed down that track. I want to cling to my supposed free will. God bless you. Biblically, in the here and now where Jesus finds you, you still have a choice, your will, but it's not free. That's the point. That's one of the main reasons that Jesus came, and he has to pursue the tokoi. He has to slap the tokoi with a, with a miracle stick. Um, and I'm not including the violent aspect of it there. You know what I mean. Your will has been brutalized by bad relationships and disappointments, your own failure. People and institutions have let you down. You've been betrayed. By the way, there's dating. You know what I mean? So your will's natural bent, I mean, hardwired is to protect itself from being hurt again. That's not a free will. And so God comes, his spirit comes, penetrates the protective boundaries that have been set up by your brain, all the fears and anxieties and craziness, the paranoias, the addictions, and makes you okay with the receiving rescue from God. Beyond that, he makes you buy into wanting to follow him, no matter what the cost. Very few, if any, of your core questions answered. So while I wouldn't put it the way the atheist did, he was largely correct. It is troubling. Scientists speak of our brains having developed deeply entrenched inner working models that to some degree just subconsciously make us make certain decisions over and over again. Again, it's not free. Think habits, think addictions. And the point is, we're not free. We're not free agents. We are moral agents, but not free agents. I'll say something about that. So to rescue us, which is the mission, God has to do the first salvo. To even make me see the coming rescue as a rescue, not a threat. 
You know, right? But well, what if I don't want to rescue? Will God honor that? Again, to be clear, God forces. It's a harsh word, but I, I want to. I'm saying it to be kindly provocative, but it picks up the essence. And that's a crime to for modern sensibilities in the West. God would force anybody. It just seems so. Uh, offensive, right? But God forces a new motivation into your brain, so powerful. Um, So while technically you could reject the rescue, you won't because you now see its value and you desperately want it. Something new is going on. You want that more than you want to protect yourself from it. And you become a follower of Jesus. Followers follow, little or a lot. He gives you the desire of your heart, right? Meaning he gives you heart desires. It's this is necessary for you or me to be rescued. And he does this. That's what he does. That's the rescue mission. That's what evangelism is all about. Actually, people are changed. It's good. Not just convinced, but changed. So imagine, this is probably a bad analogy, but I'm going to toss it out anyway. Imagine a woman who has fallen off a cruise line ship. Not fallen. She's jumped. She's done this before. She's, she's suicidal. She wants to end it all. Cruise line ship's a great place to do that, apparently. So this ship stops again, like the others. They prepare to toss out a lifeline. And you know what's going on in her brain was she screwed this up again. And by the way, when she was rescued the last couple of times, it was such a bad, awkward experience and shameful and painful. Um, You know, and she doesn't want to look awkward or stupid. And she's trying to get rid of all the pain and anguish anyway. And, you know, so is she going to take the lifeline? She wonders about rejecting it. So what God does in this metaphor is he reaches into her hippocampus where all of her memories are stored with all the nasty, bad emotions and reactionary behavior. And somehow, this is over my pay grade, over a counselor's pay grade, uh, a psychoanalyst pay grade, he makes her really want rescue. Is the bad thing? No. This is the process. And to get this, we have to see our situation pre-calling as being far more desperate and lost than we're comfortable with. We're people stuck in darkness, Isaiah. It's not like we go to God and say, hey, God, a great meeting. Thanks for having coffee with me. I'm pretty righteous. You've seen all my stuff. I'm up to 80%. So if you could just top me off, that would be great. No, we're nowhere near that. And the wages of any sin is death. So my response to the atheist is, what if, let's say, that God knew you so well and and knew that you had this thing against him? You, you've been beat up by his followers. Maybe you think he's beat you up and you're, you're invested. Your identity is invested in your anger, your self-victimization, your identity as an atheist. You, you get some hits from that. And you were afraid that it would cost you more if, uh, than you want to sacrifice if you actually follow Jesus. That's what your brain says. And that's true. Uh, all of your reputation as an atheist, you'd have to give that up. Your atheist podcast, all the other stuff. And you knew that not only was your will not free or objective, it was highly destructively skewed against your well-being and against a rescue. Not to mention maybe all the shame that's been tossed upon you and that you've created yourself, the guilt of all the things you've done wrong and you know it. And again, let's say that you really did need a rescue and that you were in denial of that, that you were miserable, that you were anxious, avoidant, lonely, afraid, angry, feeling like you're not enough. And he knew, God, being more objective than you, that you desperately need a rescue. How bad would it really be for him to make you want to be rescued? Well, it's not bad at all. That's a good thing in the the bigger context. And remember Isaiah's take on the people that Jesus called. They are stuck in darkness. Now, from a different perspective, they might have been successful fishermen or teachers or whatever, doing fine, at least compared to some others. But from Jesus's perspective, they're living way beneath their calling and humanness. No way to know that. 
uh, on their own. You can't, we, we, we're just, we don't have that kind of context. People who live in darkness can't imagine light. Follow? When it comes, they can see. It takes a while to adjust. Jesus came to set people in darkness free. Not a new seminary course or lecture series or religion or a new way of life, new principles that make people successful. He starts by making them see light. Him. They're so struck, everything else becomes so small, and they follow as they are, you know, uh, still tending towards selfish behaviors and sin. Well, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see this light penetrating people again, the people who were of the dark, and the dark was sucking all of the humanity out of them. Uh, They were the tokoi, spiritually, and the uh, anawim in the Hebrew, the miserable, the sorrowful, the oppressed. His kingdom will be made up of them, always, still. Again, it explains the messiness of churches. But to get them blessed, Jesus must proclaim, speak, utter light. When Jesus calls, they follow. It's clear in Matthew. And I'll speculate in a moment why this might be more interesting for him. But for now, it's clear. Immediately, they follow. Immediately. No ifs, ands, or buts. No quid pro quo. No negotiating. No contract or questions of any kind. All right. I said uh, we'd pick up with the, the, the verse on repentance. And we'll look at Matthew's approach to repentance. It is fascinating. I think you'll be surprised. I think you'll smile. That's in the next podcast. I'm begging you, don't miss that. Pass that on to theologians in your life, your Bible study leaders, your uh, pastor, your disciple, whatever, and and let's get some feedback. That'll be in the next podcast. Uh, Again, if you want to push back, man, there's a lot of room in today's talk for pushback. Bill at gospel-app.com. Check out the Instagram gospel app, one word. And we will see you in the next Gospel Rant podcast. Take heart, child of God. Once in a generation, a podcast comes along with the power and eloquence to inspire us all. This show will entertain you while you wait for that one. Join two best friends, author and former history teacher John Driver and comedian Johnny W. for hilarious and authentic conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. You can listen to Talk About That wherever you find your podcasts or at lifeaudio.com.